Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for, we didn't really put a number on it, the the, the trailer episode that we did this week where we kind of recapped uh, season five. And as you heard in the episode, there was two purposes for that. One was to uh, kind of remind our listeners and, and kind of refresh their memories on what we covered in season five prior to tomorrow's airing of our new TV docuseries, The Forgotten West Memphis Three. And the other purpose for it was for new people who watch the docuseries and think, huh, there's a podcast attached to this. Let's go watch the po- or listen to the podcast. So that gives them a, a good place to start to have an idea of what we've done so far. Now, this, uh, we want to warn you up front. Uh, hopefully, the sound quality and everything is going to be good here. I know I got uh, my man Mike over, over here on the line that is, that is going to do his best to make everything sound good. Uh, and he always, he always pulls it off. But just so you guys know what's going on, this week here in Michigan, on Monday, our governor uh, sent out an order uh, basically putting everybody on house arrests. We have to stay home. We have to stay away from people. And only if you're part of critical infrastructure are you able to even go to work. Um, it's, pretty, it's pretty scary and, and devastating times for a lot of people, Zach being one of them, who is, as you guys know, a tattoo artist. And tattoo shops are specifically shut down. So Zach is, Zach is stay-at-home dad for the moment. How's things, how's things going over there in uh, Dadville? It's different for sure. I'm definitely not used to this, but uh, we're making the best that we can. Yep. And we're doing the same. You know, we're not going to, we're not here to complain and, and, uh, and, and whine about it. I mean, we're, we're doing our best to, to make this happen, but you know, as, as, as much of a struggle as it is, we had a, a phone meeting on Monday and decided that, you know, we are going to continue to produce content. Our thought is, and hopefully you guys agree that, you know, since a lot of you are stuck at home, any content that you have to absorb will be much appreciated, and that seems to be the sentiment on social media. So we decided we we're going to go ahead and continue making episodes, and we're just doing this remotely. So Zach, as I said, is stay-at-home dad. That means currently he is in his house alone with two little monsters running around the house. So if there's any any uh, loud noises you hear, that's probably what's going on. That is exactly what's happening. And Mike, uh, Mike doesn't have any little mics running around his house yet, so things should be quiet there on your end. No excuses for you, Mike. Unless Skip gets out of his bed because he's like a foot away from me right now, and he, he likes to jingle when he gets up. Right. Well, yeah. And, and along those lines, I have I, I house sit or I dog sit my brother's dog during the day when he's at work, and so I have uh, I have Hank dog laying right next to me right now, so he may make some noise too. But uh, other than that, I think we're good to go. Let's go ahead and get started. Sounds good. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, this week's episode has uh, generated a ton of questions, and you know what we put out for this week's follow-up was that the questions didn't need to necessarily be related to the episode, since it was a lot of recap. So we have questions about the uh, the episode, we have questions about the upcoming Oxygen TV series, which again is going to air tomorrow, Saturday the 28th at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central, uh, and then some questions about the case in general. I don't know about you guys. Uh, I, I know, well, uh, you know, Mike. Mike is audio editing guy, but I know Zach is pretty excited for us to be digging back into the West Memphis Three case. 
Yeah, I'm extremely excited to get back into this, and I can't wait to see your show this coming weekend. Yeah, I, I have to. Uh, I almost don't want to. So, for those of you that that aren't aware, so I'm I'm an executive producer on the show. I mean, the show was created by me essentially, and and I took it myself and John Cryer. We took it to the networks and pitched it, and uh, we brought Jim Clemente on board there towards the tail end, right before we did our pitches. And uh, once we get into the production, you know, I was still serving as executive producer. But what I learned in the process is that there are many, many producers involved in a TV show like this. So I was very involved with with them doing the editing. Not that I was actually like in an editing bay with people. I was a couple of times. But for the, for the most part, you know, the episodes would get edited and then sent to me for approval to make notes. And I would send back and then they would clean up those, make those changes and then send it back to me again. But what I've done is not watch the final cut when it was all done in the, what they call the fine cut. The final fine cut was sent off to the networks last fall. I never watched it because I wanted to be as as surprised as you guys when I get to watch the final product. But this week's episode uh, that's going to air, this week's podcast episode that's going to air on Sunday is going to be my kind of recap and behind the scenes of episode one, which of course I have to do ahead of time. So the, for the first hour on Saturday, guys, I'm I'm not going to get to have as much fun as you guys because I have to watch episode one prior to so I can get this episode for Sunday put together. But uh, other than that, I'm going to be watching episodes two, three, and four this weekend at the same time you guys are. It'll be new to just as new to me as it will be to you. Yeah, I was fortunate enough to see a few of the clips that you've already shown me, just snippets here and there, and it's really well put together. And I think it's going to be a really well received show. You know, I, I hope so. And and I was thoroughly impressed. You know, I was a little scared going into the process. You know, it, it's it's tough for a, guy, a control freak like me to let go of the the reins and let somebody else take over. And and our our showrunner is a uh, is a woman named Domini Hoffman, and she is the showrunner. What you would call, what you think of, probably as a director. She's also an executive producer, but basically she runs the show. That's why she's the showrunner. So stop for just a second and tell everybody that it's not the same Domini. Yeah, it's it's a different Domini. And that's funny. I don't know if it made the final cut, but one of the interviews I was doing with Damien, uh, you know, I, I introduced him to Domini and he's like, holy shit, I've only ever met one other person named Domini in my whole life. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. <laughs> and that would be, of course, Domini Tier. Uh, but Domini is the showrunner for a for an incredible show on CNN called Declassified, which if you haven't watched that, you should totally watch it. It's very, very good. And she basically brought her entire, you know, we hired her. And then she brought her entire production team from Declassified onto onto our show to work our show. And Domini, kind of her her mission to all of us when we started was, where you know what you see on especially like Discovery ID, not to not to shit on them. I I do like their network and for some of their shows uh, and even Oxygen. But a lot of these true crime series, you know, they're they're lower budget and they're kind of shot that way. And and Domini came into this saying, we are going to make this be the nicest looking, most well put together show that Oxygen has ever seen. You know, and it's a lofty goal. But to, to be honest with you, I watch a ton of Oxygen. I think she hit the nail on the head. I mean, we had an amazing camera crew. We had great editors. The cinematography and how she put this thing together is incredible. And so for me, when they when they sent me, you know, because you, you get you get kind of you kind of lose the forest for the trees when you're in the middle of it. So, you know, I, I'm shooting for three months. I'm exhausted. One thing you're going to see when you watch the series, you'll see from scene to scene, you'll see scenes where, you know, I, I look, look good. My color in my face is good. I look healthy. And then the next scene, 
I look like I'm 20 pounds heavier and I'm pale and my eyes are sunken into my head. I was actually sick through a lot of the process of filming it. Yeah, I think I got you sick through that. Yeah, that that was the same time when you were real sick. Yeah, my fault. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it, it was rough and it's just the I was away from home for that whole time. and The constant traveling, it went from L.A. to Memphis, back to L.A., back to Memphis, back to L.A., come home for two days, go back to Memphis, back to L.A., it just really wore me out. So, you know, I kind of, you know, the, the whole process was like, it's all blending together for me. But then for when Dominie's editing team took over and cut it all together, when I saw the first, the first rough cut, my first thought was, holy shit, I want to watch this show, you know, kind of forgetting that I was on it. Yeah, I'm really excited to see it as well. Yep. So uh, that being said, uh, Mike, you have, I know you have a list of questions. So uh, let's see if we can figure out this remote recording thing and why don't you start firing away. All right, Bob, let's get to it, man. All right, our first question comes from Laura. Will I be able to buy the TV series on Amazon? You know, I, I'm i not sure. That, so the most common question that I've had asked to me since we started publishing the uh, the trailers on our social media, the most common question is, can I watch it in the UK? Can I watch it in Canada? Can I watch it in Australia? And so I hit up the people at Oxygen and asked them that question. Uh, they did some checking, and they said, you know, basically it sounds like at least in the initial airing, unfortunately, no, they don't have any presence in those countries. Uh, but I've so I've but I've heard a few things, and what I've heard is there there is a network. I don't know exactly what it's called, but at least in the UK, that oftentimes airs oxygen shows. So it may not be right when we get to watch it, but it will be eventually probably available there. And then the marketing team with Oxygen, when I spoke with them about it. They said that after the show airs, at least part one will probably be available on their YouTube feed. So they'll they'll post the first part or the first episode on their YouTube feed after it airs. So everyone should be able to watch that. As far as Amazon goes, I'm kind of getting a we're not sure. But what I know is if you go on Amazon, like Amazon Prime, the Amazon Video, most Oxygen shows, you can go on there and purchase episodes of Oxygen, of shows that air on Oxygen. So I don't know. I'm, real, I'm, I'm disappointed that it's going to be tough for you guys to watch. Hopefully, you'll get the opportunity to do so. I did also hear, at least for people in the United States that don't have cable, because I've heard that too, people that just don't have cable and they're upset because they won't be able to watch it. The Oxygen app, and this, I don't know this from firsthand knowledge, but from what I've been told, the Oxygen app will allow you, if you sign up, they'll give you three free credits without having to put in a TV uh, provider in order to have the service, which means you can watch three episodes of anything uh, for free before you have to start. You, you have to either pay for the app or to have a TV provider. So in that case, what works out really well is, so as I mentioned before, we shot this show as four one-hour episodes. Well, what they've done is they combined episodes one and two and you know re rebranded them as part one and part two and made them part one and part two of a single episode. So what you're going to see on Saturday night, tomorrow night, is episode one, which will be part one and two. And then on, on Sunday, you'll see episode two, which is part three and four, which would be awesome. I mean, a nice weekend event when we're all stuck at home. But uh, what it should do is, if I understand it correctly, is through the Oxygen app, 
Saturday, when both parts air, that should count as one episode. And then Sunday, when the other two parts air, that should count as one episode. So with those three free credits, you should, I say should, from what I've been told, you should be able to watch the entire series this weekend through the Oxygen app without having to pay anything. Well, even if it's only three and there are separate parts, you could watch part one on on YouTube and then part two, three, and four through the or through the app. Oh, there you go. See, that's why we keep Zach around. Smart guy. <laughs> well, barely. <laughs> All right, this next one's from Angie. When researching for the podcast and TV show, did you guys get in contact with any of the directors or producers who worked on the movies from the early 90s? Uh, I did, actually. Uh, I've, I've worked with uh, Amy Berg. So she, Amy Berg was the director of West of Memphis, which in my opinion is the best of the documentaries. Amy and I got to know each other during our coverage of season one, the Anand Syed case, because, you know, if you guys know that story, Rabia Chowdhury took Anand and Hayes' story to Sarah Koenig after watching West of Memphis because she thought, wow, if, if this crowdsourcing thing could actually, you know, move mountains like it did in the West Memphis 3 case, maybe the same thing could happen in Anand's case. So then later, when the uh, the case against Anand Syed, I think it was called, the, the HBO docuseries that aired last year, Amy Berg was the director of that, too. So at the, the, the Night for Justice event for Anand's case a couple of years ago, I met Amy because originally, and I think I mentioned this before, they wanted me to be a part of that docuseries. And it just didn't work out because of contracts that I had with, with what became Oxygen at the time was with Warner Brothers for this TV series. Um, but so Amy and I got to know each other a little bit. And then she's been super helpful along the way. You know, I, um, her and Rachel Geyser, who was one of the, was the private investigator that was featured on West of Memphis quite a bit. I've worked with her as well. And so, you know, especially in the early stages of investigation, you know, Rachel was able to help me get in contact with people and then, and also share some information with me that wasn't necessarily aired on the show. And then Amy's kind of been the same way, you know, when, whenever, you know, I've had a question about, a particular person or, you know, kind of want to know why you guys didn't go this route or if you were aware of this route, Amy was, Amy was more than willing to help. I love Amy to death. And, uh, she, 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 she was a big help. You know, none, none of them played a real big role, but it was definitely nice to have that resource available when, when we had questions along the way. All right. Nicole says on this series, will there be any more clarification on cause of death and crime scene evidence? She says, clearly, Preddy didn't know what he was doing, and that part has always been so convoluted to me. I feel that will point to the real killer. Uh, Yeah. So one thing that you're going to see this weekend is what I wanted to do was bring in an entirely new team of experts. You know, you've kind of got the original, you know, Dr. Peretti, who says that, you know, who has some pretty, pretty bizarre views of what these injuries were caused from, which still to this day, you know, the knowing what we know now. I don't know, you know, once um, uh, Werner Spitz got involved and Dr. Richard Suveron got involved, you know, during the filming of West of Memphis, we learned quite a bit about animal predation and postmortem injuries. Knowing that, I, I just don't know how Peretti didn't understand what he was looking at. I mean, it seemed pretty obvious when, you know, based on what, you know, the he studied the, the the textbook written by Warner Spitz and the the textbook is very clear. I have it. When you read about certain postmortem injuries and about animal activity and things like that, 
it, it would appear that it should have been very clear to Peretti that he was looking at post-mortem injuries. So I don't know if he was being influenced by the state, if he was just shitty at his job. I really don't know. So what I wanted to do is, so we've got side A and side B. I wanted to bring another neutral third party in. So we actually hear from a new medical examiner. We, had, we brought in a brand new expert medical examiner to examine the case. And, and her name is Dr. Rebecca Shu. And she gives her opinion on what we're seeing with the medical evidence. And you'll, you'll see that play out this weekend. Uh, but yes, j- just like, you know, what we're trying to do, the whole point of the TV series is for us to do a completely new investigation. You know, we determined on the podcast during season five that the West Memphis three, Damian, Jason, and Jesse were innocent. And so the next phase that was promised to you that we always do is then to investigate the real killer. And we decided the best way to do that is to go right back to the beginning investigate the crime scene, investigate the medical evidence, study victimology, and look for witnesses that were close to the victims at that time. And that's exactly what we did, and it's going to be very different from anything you've seen before, and it is is definitely going to give us a pretty clear perspective on the case. Now, I need to go back and listen to that episode because I felt like you did a very good job on the podcast of kind of going over the probable cause of death, but it will be nice to hear a new doctor's perspective on it. Yeah, and, and that's what I was, you know, what what I want, I didn't want to bring because we thought about, you know, getting a hold of of Doctor Spitz and saying, you know, can you come in and explain to us, you know, in more detail what you found, and we thought, no, that, that's just, you know, not that he would do this, but you know, people will tend to defend their own position, so we wanted to get a, a completely neutral third party to look at it and see what what their findings were. That'll be really interesting to see what they have to say. Fred says, I live in Canada, and since I probably won't be able to watch the docuseries on oxygen, is that going to make it hard for me to know what's being talked about in the following episodes, since you will be doing a breakdown of the series? No, absolutely not. So the we're hoping the next four episodes, the one you're going to hear this Sunday, which is, is going to air kind of, so what you're going to see is Saturday night, episodes one and two, or parts one and two are going to air on oxygen. Sunday morning. I'm going to give my behind the scenes and recap of episode or part one. And then Sunday night, you're going to see episodes three and four from there. We'll continue on. So the next week we'll have an episode about part two, the following week about part three, the following week about part four. And then from there, we're going to continue on with this until we, until we get as far as we can go with it. Um, but no, so the, the purpose is, is kind of twofold for the people that watch the series. It's going to give you you know, kind of some behind the scenes information about it. And then also, you know, you, you film 200 hours worth of video or more, and then you, you get four hours of video. So there's a lot of stuff that was cut out. I'll be talking about that. But the other purpose is for people that aren't able to watch it, you'll be able to listen. I'm, I'm not going to speak as, as though I'm assuming everyone has already seen the episodes. So, you know, I, I will definitely walk you through what happened. So it, it's kind of a shitty consolation prize, but at, at least you'll have an idea of what you missed by what I'm explaining in these next four episodes. So definitely, definitely, if you can't watch that the the series, make sure you listen to these next four episodes, and, and you'll you'll at least hear what you'll you'll have the same information, just in a different medium than everybody else has. Maya says, "I haven't heard your thoughts on Judge Barnett. From what I've been able to find, he seemed especially partial to the state." especially during the clips from Jesse's trial. I recall the testimony of some of the alibi witnesses and Fogelman just hammering away at them, Sidham trying to object, and Barnett just overruling him over and over. Was this a general theme during both trials? It seems like Barnett also had his mind made up in advance, 
which is honestly terrifying. Definitely the 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 phrase that I would say surrounds Fogelman, the West Memphis police and Barnett is the fix was in before this trial. You know, I think there was so much political pressure, there was so much uh, media attention partially on to fault the West Memphis 3, excuse me, the West Memphis Police Department, you know, in the way they they did their press conferences and released and leaked information to the media. But you know, Barnett's there's definitely the theme throughout where he certainly, in my opinion, seems to be favoring the prosecution with with objections and rulings. But the problem started way before that. It's you know there was one of the best examples of this is prior to the trial. You know the uh, I believe it was Warren Holmes. Uh, don't quote me on that, but the it, it was an expert that came in to evaluate Jesse Miss Kelly's confession and Jesse's trial. And, and of course, came to the same conclusion that every other expert has come to, that this was a false confession. The information didn't come from him, and, and he had tons of science and evidence to back up what he was saying. And in pre-trial hearings, Barnett ruled that he wasn't allowed to say anything. They let him testify, but he limited what he was allowed to say. And, and, and in those hearings, Barnett literally says, and this is paraphrasing, I have ruled that that confession is admissible and reliable. So I'm not going to let you get on the stand and tell the jury that it's not that it's not reliable because then you're going to be contradicting me. So you're not allowed, he was not allowed to get on the stand and give his opinion that this was a false confession. And that was just one example of of Barnett stacking the deck against Miss Kelly and then against Damien and Jason as well at their trial. Prior to the trial ever even happening, I mean, imagine they went into the trial. Their attorneys went in completely handcuffed because whatever information they did have available to them that was going to help, whatever evidence they had, the judge, Judge Barnett, was overruled and wouldn't let them present that evidence at trial. Those three were damned the moment Gitchell said eleven, or eleven, as as a lot of <laughs> as I like to say. <laughs> But yeah, that, that is, you know, then let's talk about that for a second because that is the most infuriating part of this case. One of the most infuriating is, so we all know the case, right? Zach, you've been studying the case for years. And then, you know, I've been doing it full time for, for a few years now. Mike's been a, a big part of this along the way. This is my thing you can believe they're innocent or you can believe they're guilty. But to hold the opinion that you are certain. That the case is an 11, as Gary Gitchell said, is preposterous for anybody. It is so ridiculous that someone can look at this case. And I see him on social media. And, and you know, by the way, for those of you that are worried about the, the ugly crowd coming in again, I've, I, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I'm not playing. I've already started. Anybody that comes in with their bullshit, I'm already banning, blocking, kicking out. I'm, I'm not interested in their in their BS. Because I'm just I'm amazed that people will come onto our social media and be like it's it's so obvious if you just read the documents th- these these three are so guilty. It's like how can you possibly say that? Well, you know the, the entire state's case has been deconstructed. You know, it, sure you can try to come up with a theory of how maybe they're still involved, but to not admit that there's at least some question to it is ridiculous. And that starts with Gary Gitchell knowing what a weak piece of shit case they had. At that press conference, so you know that this is right after Jesse Miss Kelly's confession, you know, and I'll, I'm air quoting confession. That he comes out and says, "Oh, the case against him is an 11." He was there for that interrogation. He was part of the confession. He's the one 
that they took a break and then knew he was, you know, the, the prosecutor told him and he knew that they can't go to court with this because he got everything wrong. He got wrong about the uh, about the sexual assault. He got wrong about uh, about the weapons that were used, the, about the time of day. So it was Gary Gitchell himself that talks to Jesse Miss Kelly after they shut the tapes off and explains to him how they need to he needs to move the time back. It couldn't have happened at nine in the morning or noon, and he needs to to explain other injuries. Gary Gitchell. So what I'm getting at is Gitchell knew one hundred percent that at Best this con- this confession is unreliable, and, and certainly had to had to know there's a possibility that it's a completely false confession. And so knowing that, knowing that he had to straight up tell a 17 year old kid with an IQ of 72 who was scared out of his mind, who was highly suggestible, that he had to tell him what to say in order to get even the prosecutor to accept the confession, to then go before the press and say. Oh, the case out of a scale of one to ten against the West Memphis Three is an eleven or an eleven is complete bullshit, and 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 I don't know how that man has slept at night since then. Yeah, if you're gonna say that, you need to catch the killer red-handed with those boys and have four people witnesses and have it on film. There's no way you can say it's eleven. Exactly. You know that that if there was witnesses that said, "Oh, I saw these three going in there." And they don't have alibis, and and their fingerprints are found on the scene, and their DNA is found on the scene. Yeah, then you could say, "Oh, we got a rock solid case." Is an eleven, but yeah, for for this, you got you got you got a kid that gives a, a bullshit confession that doesn't fit the crime scene, doesn't fit. The worst part about it, looking back on it now, is what we see from the Miss Kelly confession is obviously Gitchell and Ridge they they manipulated Miss Kelly to get him to say what they wanted him to say, but it was to get him to say what they thought the crime scene evidence was. So then. Years later, and that's how the people that are still holding tight to his confessions, like, get, get out of here with that bullshit. Because then we look at the actual evidence, and we find out that the injuries they were trying to get him to describe weren't part of the crime. They were done by animals hours later after the killer was gone. And, and to still hold on to that and be like, oh, well, look, he's explaining these injuries. Like, they're completely ignoring the fact that they manipulated him, in, him into giving testimony about evidence of things on the crime scene that were actually not on the crime scene. And these people that will still hold on to that confession. If you have a new theory for me, why you think the West Memphis Three are guilty, that doesn't involve a satanic ritual cult killing, and and doesn't involve Jesse Miss Kelly's confession, then I'm all ears. But I've never seen it. Yeah, it doesn't matter what camp you're in on this. I mean, to say that there's no fault in this case is ridiculous. Agreed. All right, Nick says, do you think Samuel Little could have been Mr. Bojangles? Ooh, that's a good question. Do either of you guys know who Samuel Little is? No, Bob, can you clarify that? Yeah, so Samuel Little is uh, has been noted by the FBI as being the most notorious serial killer in America. Not a lot of people know a whole lot about him. I don't know a whole hell of a lot about him, but he he's a guy... Uh, He's an African-American gentleman, which is why people wonder if maybe he was Mr. Bojangles. And he was also in the Memphis area somewhere around the early 90s. He murdered a woman. But he, after being caught for something else, confessed to like 93 murders. Oh, it's the guy in California, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, I did hear about this guy. Yeah, and he had he painted pictures of all of his victims. And so, oh, wow. so here's all these victims, and one of them from the early 90s was uh, a woman 
and that he that he abducted from uh, Memphis and then killed and disposed of her body in West Memphis. And so that's why people think, oh, maybe he was Mr. Bojangles. Interesting thought, but I, I, I don't think there's any way that he was. I mean, for starters, his choice of victims is pretty clear. They're they're not all women. There were men murdered along the way, but that was really because they were just kind of in the way, from what I understand. But you know, he would he preyed upon women who were either in the the sex trade or or the drug trade. People that he could abduct, I'm not sure if he raped or not, I believe so, uh, and then kill and dispose of their bodies, and, and he got away with it because they were, they were the type of people where most people that knew them would assume, oh, they must have OD'd, they must have disappeared, they must be high on drugs somewhere, and so he was able to dis- distance himself. But there's no instances with him that I'm aware of where there were little children involved and just nothing about what happened to Stevie, Michael, and Christopher fits with the MO or signature of, of this guy at all. You know, so the only the only connecting factors you have is that he may have been in the area around that time and he was an African American guy. Other than that, there's no there's no connection. And I just I don't see behaviorally speaking, looking we've got a pretty good cross section of how he operates and what his preference of victim was. And and the the three eight year old white kids, just white boys, just doesn't fit with him at all. I'm not a huge proponent of the Mr. Bojangles theory either. I mean, it's an interesting theory, but I just don't feel like the timeline works out. The distance is too great. I mean, there's a lot of factors that I don't think work for that theory. So one interesting you say that because one of the things that we cover in the uh, in the show you're going to see is we actually brought in a, a, a pretty interesting expert that you may not you you may not think would be an expert for a uh, a, a triple homicide case like this. But so what we, you know, we, we, we decided at one point through our investigations, like, well, we need at least, you know, there's some, there's, there's some prevailing theories out there. The, the Mr. Bojangles is one of them. And so we decided, well, we should actually investigate this and decide if this is, if this is something that should be ruled out or if we should put some energy into it. So we, we, there's a whole, there's a whole section in there on the Mr. Bojangles theory. And uh, I, I can't wait for you to watch. I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but it's, it's super interesting. No, I'm excited to watch that. And and if you remember right, the first time I ever wrote into the show was about Mr. Bojangles. I don't remember. What did you write? That that I didn't believe in the theory and I kind of broke the theory down. You'll have to go back and listen to that episode, but it's in there from me before I was on the show. From Zach when he was just uh, the my buddy, the tattoo artist. Correct. All right. This one's from Matt. I'd really like to know if Jamie Ballard has cleared up the issue about speaking to Chris's brother, Ryan, the day after the murder. In my opinion, her sighting of Terry Hobbs shouting to the boys is a real turning point in the case. Why would he have said he didn't see Stevie at all on the 5th if he had nothing to hide? Well, that's a, there's a lot to unpack there. I don't believe Jamie Clark Ballard's statement is accurate. Now, I don't know if that means she's lying or if she's misremembering, but... It, it definitely didn't happen the way she said it did. We get into that a little bit too in the series. I think I think that's in the final cut. If not, we'll talk more about it in the episodes following the TV series. But you know, it, it certainly made for good TV on West of Memphis, and and it really got a whole lot of people you know convinced that Terry Hobbs was the killer. But you know, the more I looked into it, there's there's about 15 different reasons why that statement is not accurate. So 
it, it kind of makes you wonder. So it's okay, maybe it happened in, in the hypothetical timeline that I played in this week's episode. That was before we got into Jamie Clark Ballard too deeply in the podcast. So in that one, I had figured, well, she must be telling the truth. There's no reason for her to lie. So the only time it fits is earlier, back closer to four thirty. Now I'm not so convinced that it really happened at all. Because if if all these other details are proven to be wrong, then how can we believe that any of it happened? You know that that, that Terry's yelling at all three of them. Plus, there's you know there's just a whole bunch of reasons why we do get into it on the podcast. We'll get into it more later. But no, she's never reconciled. We did reach out to Jamie Ballard and ask her if she would interview on the show, and she declined. She, you know, I, I think that she had probably gotten word that that seemingly we were the first people, at least in the media, that believe that the West Memphis Three are innocent that don't believe her statement, if that makes sense. So, of course, when she comes out and says that, the the air quotes nons were, were attacking it because, you know, they believe that the three are guilty, so they don't want Terry Hobbs to be, you know, a suspect. Then the other problem is there's just as much cognitive dissonance on the on the supporter side, the innocent side, because a lot of people took that and they wanted to believe it, so they believed it because that makes the West Memphis Three look innocent. I believe wholeheartedly the West Memphis Three are innocent, and I do not believe Jamie Clark Ballard's story at all. All right, Jill says, have Pam Hicks and Mark Byers ever talked about the specific moment or piece of information that changed their minds from complete hatred of the West Memphis Three to now believing them to be innocent? We've discussed the power of cognitive dissonance in other episodes, and I have to give these two a lot of credit for choosing to accept the facts. Remarkable. You know, I've never discussed with either of them the specific moment, but it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, that for anybody to say that this is a clear-cut case of guilt is is disingenuous at best, uh, willfully ignorant at worst, in my opinion. So, so you know, they they just wanted the truth, and I think what's ha- what's happened with them is they just weren't locked into a theory. It took a lot. It took a lot for them to get over emotionally the fact that they thought the people that killed their kids were caught. But, you know, the evidence is is overwhelming. And I think for certain, especially with Pam, you know, she's seeing some evidence come out that really seems to indicate that her husband at the time may have been involved or may sh- or, or should maybe a suspect in the case. And so Pam has more insight into that situation than any of us. So you can see how maybe it's easier for her to accept, oh, wait a minute. It's not just maybe those three didn't do it, but for her, you know, I I think she could look at she could look at things and say, oh my God. Basically look at her husband at the time's actions and movements in a different light once she realized that there's a whole lot of evidence indicating that it wasn't the three who were convicted. And then Mark Byers, you know, he's Byers is he he's a goofy dude. He was definitely looked very crazy in the in the documentaries. He's not not goofy, but he's much smarter than people give him credit for. And I think that him just just paying attention to what's going on around him, you know, and, and he got thrown around as uh, accused of of killing the boys at one point in time. And I think that caused him to take a, a closer look at the case because he was trying to, you know, prove pe- to people that it wasn't him. And I think that closer look indicated to him that it could have been someone else. And I got to hand it to both of them because they were able to let go of their predetermined 
assumptions and theories and and realize that okay this i don't think these guys did it yeah i gotta agree i think there was never a moment or one piece but i think once they you know once cooler heads came through and looking at the case as a whole it's it's hard to deny right it's at least hard to deny that there are holes in this case gaping holes exactly jeremy says the convictions of the west memphis three were exclusively due to jesse's confession without it there was no case I'm curious, could Jason and Damien's attorney have called Jesse to the stand during their trial? They could have, but that I don't I think that would have been a terrible idea. So what happened in their trial is that Jesse's confession, for those of you that aren't aware, was not admitted in the trial. Because Jesse refused to testify for the prosecution, the confession couldn't be introduced. Now what we found out later was from the jurors' notes, their written notes during their deliberation was they already knew about it, and they absolutely considered it for their uh, their deliberations and their conviction of the th- of the two. But so forget that happened though. Going into the trial, the position they were in was the jury wasn't allowed to know that Jesse Miss Kelly confessed. So if you bring Jesse Miss Kelly in to testify, then you also bring the confession in with it. So there were there just would have been no advantage whatsoever. And also, now you're going to subject him to the cross-examination of the prosecutor uh, in real time in front of a jury. It would have been a terrible idea. Mary says, did Jesse Miss Kelly ever recant his confession? If so, when was it? And what did he say? How did it come about? Yeah, I mean, he, he kind of recanted it after every time he repeated it. You know, to It depended on who's on in front of him. You know, when there was police in front of him or prosecutors telling him, hey, if you want to help yourself, if you want to be able to go home, young lad, you need to tell us this story. Then he tells him the story. But then when when you know his attorney or family are in front of him saying, "Hey, why are you doing this? You you shouldn't. You need to tell the truth." And he's like, "Oh, well, I didn't really do it. I just told them what they wanted to hear." And then the police, you know, after he got, the, the biggest one was after he got convicted during the car ride from you know to back to the jail from the court. You know, we we don't know. We only have Jesse's word on it. What happened there? But you know, he says the, the officers were telling him, "You know, you're going to prison for the rest of your life." But the only way that you're going to get out of this and not be in prison for the rest of your life is if you tell them the if you say the other three the other two did it, you know. So so he's come forward and on several occasions afterwards, and I believe there's either been affidavits or sworn statements where he's walked through, you know, how they manipulated him, how they they tricked him, as he would say, into giving the the story that he gave and the promises that were made to him and the threats that were made to him. So yeah, it's been. It's been multiple occasions. The only time Jesse has ever held to the fact that he actually witnessed this is when there were law enforcement or prosecutors in front of him telling him to do so, except for the one, the one that's called the Bible Confession, which is the one right after he is convicted. And he says that the police in the car were telling him that you better say that they did it and you better testify. Otherwise, you're going to spend the rest of your life in prison. That's when his attorney, Dan Stidham, took him in and, and, and he took a, a, another confession from him where Jesse swore on the Bible, which in that confession, which a lot of people like to tell, well, why would he tell his own attorney that he did it? Well, it was because he was scared to death, first of all. But if you look at the transcript of that confession, that, that version of the confession, it's the worst one. He's completely baffled because he doesn't have police officers in the room suggesting to him what actually happened. And that one, he he's talking about that the the murders happen in the main bayou, which is nowhere near what actually happened, and it's out in broad daylight, that it's by the pipe, that it's in you know eight feet of water over their ears. 
I mean, it's it's nothing even resembling anything that what actually happened. And what happened there was, you know, he had sat through the whole trial, so he'd seen crime scene photos, he'd heard from from experts. He thought that he had a better idea of what actually happened, but he again confused all the details. But to me, that confession, the one that the nons like to tout as the the Bible confession, of course he did it. Why would he do this? Yeah, it's easy to say why would he confess to his own attorney after the conviction because that sounds good for your case, but what they don't want to talk about is what he actually said in that confession when he didn't have someone telling him what to say. I mean, it is a made-up story that makes zero sense and and doesn't even connect in reality to what actually happened to those boys. Kelly says, I saw one comment about some sort of blue candle wax found at the scene, which was a match to candles in Damien's room. What does wax have to do with the crime scene? (laughs) Nothing. This is another common non. So here's another funny story. There was at the time of the trial, science was uh, this type of science was kind of in its infancy and not understood real well. The state got got experts to come in and say there's a red fiber found at the crime scene and it's consistent with a robe, Jason's mother's bathrobe in their house. So that's evidence connecting them. And then there was some blue wax material, and Damien had a blue candle or some kind of candle in his house, and and that's consistent with that. And so, I mean, that's how far they were stretching to connect the these two to the crime scene. Obviously, later for what what you'll never hear the nons talk about. Though they, it baffles me, they will still cite that shit as evidence when later, when science was improved, and, and it was no longer well. This this fiber is maybe consistent with this bathrobe, but now they were able to actually look at it and say that fiber absolutely did not come from that bathrobe. They still cited as evidence the candle wax. The only thing consistent with the with that wax found at the crime scene and the the candle that Damien had is that they were both wax. There there was absolutely nothing. That was, you know, that was microscopically or molecularly that connects one to the other. Just there was just some wax material found in the crime scene, and so that's a part of the the satanic ritual story, right? That he's, you know, he's he's burning candles and dripping wax, but that absolutely has no connection, no bearing in reality. But the same people that will still cite those things as evidence against the West Memphis Three, those same people will take a hair. They was pulled out of the bindings of one of the boys, not just somewhere randomly on the crime scene, pulled out of the middle of the knot of one of the boys, and a, a certain individual cannot be excluded from that. It's not saying it's his, but it, it very well could be his hair. They'll say, that's bullshit. That, that means nothing. That could be transfer. We don't even know if it's his. So you talk about inconsistency. They will still tell you, the red thread, the red fiber on the crime scene, that's relevant evidence, even though we know for a fact that it didn't come from that robe. But then look at an actual human hair tied into the knots of the boys, and they'll say that's irrelevant. And when you see things like that, that's when you realize like there's no reasoning with these people. Now, that, that hair, their big talking point on that is there's, new, there's no root ball on the hair. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. And the, the technology used to test the... The DNA from that hair back when it was done, just that they basically went as far as they could go with it with that old technology, which which is a uh, a mitochondrial match. It's basically it's it's DNA that comes from the mother's side. You can't really 
narrow down and say specifically that this person did it. So it comes to like 2.5% of the population or something like that, uh, depending on which statistic you look at, will 2.5% or 3% or whatever it is of people will match that hair or can't be excluded from that hair. So it's not like a, a nuclear DNA result where you get like from a root where you can say there is a 1 in 10 billion chance that it was this person. Uh, it, it's more like there's a, a 1 in 33 chance that it's this person. Roger that. Sue says, I'm curious about the turtles. I used to turtle trap. I've got some really large, nasty, mean snappers in Ohio. The way we set the traps is with a stick and string and a milk jug. It reminds me of the way the kids' clothes were found. I don't know if this is anything of value. I just see the kids as traps and floating bait. Any idea, if any, if your suspects were trappers? Ooh, uh, have not looked into that, but that's that's actually really interesting. I did not know that. Um, we, we do hear from a turtle expert in the TV series, but I didn't know that that's how the traps were done. That's interesting because essentially that's right. You know, that's, that's why we did the test with the pig and the, and the chickens is, you know, we, we, we tied them down to the, to the bottom to see what would happen with the turtles. And they reacted in the way we expected them to react feeding on the, on the, on the flesh. But huh? No, but that, that's really interesting. It's something we might have, when we get back into the full investigation, we need to, we need to uh, address that. Good, good catch. Is that footage still out there that you, you guys put together? Yeah, uh, we turned a lot of it over to the um, to Oxygen for the series. Okay. But I still have a lot of it um, to put together. It just, I started putting it together, but it's really boring. You know, it's it's hours and hours of footage of underwater footage of, like, the, of, of the chickens and the pigs, and you just see turtles coming and coming and coming, and then there'll be a minute where there's nothing. And then so I was trying to just kind of cut together a highlight reel and just kind of I just had other things to do, so I haven't done it yet. But you see some of it in the in the series. Good to know. Our last question comes from Tara. After filming and recording this series, do you have a list of people that you believe to be suspects? Do you feel that justice will be served in this case? Three little boys were murdered, and I hope that in my lifetime, justice will be served. Uh, I absolutely do. I have a, a very narrowed list of suspects, and I can say with confidence that after this investigation through the TV series and where we're going to be standing after Sunday, we are closer now than we have ever been to actually solving this case. And I 100% believe that this case not only can, but will be solved. But it's going to take action from all of you. And we'll talk about all that next week after you see exactly what I'm talking about. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing, and all music for the show is created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by Zach Weaver, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. A big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd really like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. 
To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, Truth and Justice Pod. Just click the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fan page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at BobRuffTruth. Mike can be found at MurbGaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. And Zach is at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. I'm getting uh, getting pretty bored here, fellas. How's things going in your worlds? Yeah, you were real sick of our faces last week, but now you're not. <laughs> I wish you were here. I miss you so much. <laughs>